Well, I'm not much on horror movies. That time has passed for me. I don't really enjoy horror movies for any reason. And yet, about a month ago, I watched a quote-unquote Christian horror movie. People are dubbing this thing a Christian horror movie. I don't know how you make that. Nefarious, have you seen it? I'm not going to give it all away. I'll give you enough. Maybe you want to go watch it. There's a few things about it that I would say may be excessive on different points and might not agree with a couple things. But it's a story, made-up story, but a story about a guy on death row named Edward. And he's about to die, but the psychiatrist has to come in and pronounce him sane before he can have the death penalty. He's killed a number of people, and so the atheist psychiatrist comes in, and most of the movie is these two men sitting across the table in this death row sentence that this guy's have in prison talking. And he asks him some questions. The psychiatrist comes in and asks him some questions. Ask him his name. And he doesn't say his name is Edward. He says he's a demon. So it gets interesting real quick in this movie. And through the movie, it is a sobering reminder. It's a sobering reminder of the activity of the evil one in our lives. And while there are things that are excessive, I think, in the movie to the excessive nature of demons and their power over us, and a few details. The, the honest truth is, is that we often forget that there is an evil one. We often are believe, like the psychiatrist, this atheist psychiatrist, that there's no such thing as the spiritual world. There's no such thing as angels and demons that are active in our lives. But the movie, I think, does a really good job, especially if you have teenagers and up. I would encourage you to go watch this movie to be reminded of the schemes and the deceptions of the evil one in our lives. It's interesting because when I watched the movie, I thought about C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. If you've read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, you're reminded of this higher-ranking demon who um, interacts with a, a younger lower-ranking demon, and reminds him all and teaches him of all the schemes of the evil one that they push on to people with temptations and deceptions and schemes to get them ultimately to believe, not believe in their God as creator and their savior, but to bring them to the eternal torment that they are in. So I'm glad you came this morning. We're going to talk about heaven and hell and judgment. It's 104 degrees outside. We come to this text this morning, another parable where Jesus will uncover the way that we are self-deceived about death, about heaven, about hell, about judgment, and he will unpack this for some, even some religious people that think they've made their way, that think they have the right answers about heaven and hell and judgment. It's a sobering parable about heaven, hell, and judgment. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. And we'll be in verses 19 through 31. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Perhaps you remember it. Rich man, poor man. But the question in the end is who's really the rich man in the end? Who's really the poor man in the end? Page 876 in your Bible. We don't much like to talk about death, do we? Not in our culture. We don't really like to talk about hell or judgment. We'll talk about heaven a little bit. But we don't like to talk about death and hell and judgment. We certainly have thoughts about it, but we don't want to be reminded of it. And so one of the questions we need to ask ourselves, even as believers in Jesus, are we deceived about 
heaven and hell and judgment. We can't talk about judgment because it's judgmental. Or when we talk in our culture about hell, it's just the you know, Bugs Bunny picture of heaven and hell, which is not really real. You know, and every, even dog, we know that dogs go to heaven, right? I have two of them. Sorry, I'm trying to make light a little bit. But humans, all humans go to heaven too. I mean, love wins in the end, even if God is just. Love wins, right? No, this is sobering. These are some sobering truths that we're walking into this morning. So I pray that you guard your hearts, but be open to the truth of God's word because Jesus is going to cut right through it. And he's doing that because he loves even the Pharisee that he's talking to who is deceived, who's self-deceived, who the evil one has convinced the Pharisee that they are self-righteous and they don't need forgiveness and that their lot in life and their status in life equals God's favor. And he's showing compassion even for the Pharisee and the people that he's talking to this morning. So we'll walk into this text, Luke 16, 19 through 31. And it's interesting because Jesus, the few verses before, give us some context of who Jesus is talking to. And I think I've gotten almost all the parables. We've had some other guys preach. I think I've gotten almost all the parables that talk directly. Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees. And in this text, the text before it, what Jesus does is he gives us the parable of the dishonest manager. And Luke, right after it, says, you know what? The Pharisees heard that, and they were mad at Jesus. They didn't want Jesus. They were upset at Jesus, and they told him so. And Luke says this, the Pharisees were not only concerned about external righteousness and all the ways they were good before God, they also were lovers of money. And it makes sense, right? If everything's external, righteousness is external, well, guess what? You better have your stuff together externally. You better be rich because that's the sign of God's blessing. So Jesus tells them another parable. Serious stuff. Three sobering but essential truths, y'all about the afterlife, about heaven, about hell, about judgment. And I think there's some coordinating deceptions that we can tend to believe or tend to even downplay. Man, great instruction in this passage this morning about how we should live in view of eternity by looking at a parable that looks past the grave. Check it out. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked the sores of the poor man. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This is a window into eternity. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in the like manner bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm, 
and has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophet, let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone would just go to them from the dead, they would repent the thing he hadn't done. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should even rise from the dead. Sobering words of Jesus directed to these Pharisees. Your first thought this morning is this. Our earthly station is not determinative to our eternal destination. Here's why I say that. Here's some background. In the old covenant of Israel, oftentimes what you would see with someone who had believed in God, like Abraham, for example, since he's in the parable, what you would see in the old covenant, after they had trusted in God and believed in God, remember Abraham, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What? His faith or his works? His faith. After that, God would bless them. If you look at Abraham, God blessed them physically. And so one of the weird things that happened in the first century was Israel, most of Israel, would look out and say, well, that person's in that zip code, and they're really wealthy. It must mean that God has shown them favor. It must mean that they are close to God, that they have relationship with God, because God is a God who blesses physically. And then they would look at people who were poor, and people who were sick. And they would say, that must mean that God is punishing this people for their sin. It was like seed form of the prosperity gospel that we have today. That if you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, that means you have faith, and that means you're good with God. But if you are sick and poor, that means you don't have faith, and you are punished by God. Seed form, prosperity gospel, first century. So that was broadly the thought in the first century. Not only that, the Pharisees, remember they were lovers of money, probably because of this. You remember what they would say? Remember what they said to the, blind, the man born blind and his parents? Who sinned? This guy or his parents? If I was his parents, I just want to punch him, right? No. What did Jesus say? No, that I might be glorified even through this suffering. They got it wrong. And so here's what's happening. If a first century Jew broadly was reading this, they would say, yeah, the rich man, in his riches, he's favored by God. And the poor man who's carried over to the rich man's house, he must have done something really wrong. He's not right with God. See how Jesus flips this on his head on its head, doesn't he? He's like, no, 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 no. Look at it. Look at the text. Look at the rich man. Look at his lifestyle. He lived this opulent lifestyle. Look at his clothes. Look at what it says. He had royal clothes. The, the color purple is of royalty. It says he wore fine linens. And then it says that he ate sumptuously, meaning he could afford to take the leftovers and give it to somebody at the gate. 
He lived an opulent life and lifestyle. And then it turns. And the audience would say, that's God's favor. And Jesus does what he always does in these parables. He's creating a contrast. And then you see the poor man. Look at it there. The only place in any parable that you see a name of a person is right here. Lazarus. So remember, parables are true-to-life-like stories, made-up stories, but they have spiritual truths in them. So I don't think this is literal, that this is Lazarus. Like Lazarus was a pretty common name. It's like John in our culture. But there's a reason, and I'll get to it later, why I think he uses this name. So it's Lazarus, which means God helps. What happens? He can't even walk to this guy's gate, can he? He's laid there probably by his friends or someone else. He's laid at the gate. Why is he laid at a rich man's gate? Because it was also customary for rich people to take care of and bless people in need. That was also a thing. That look, if someone's in need, we're going to be generous with all that we have and give to them. But notice something. There's nowhere in this text, and there are a lot in between the lines in this parable. But there's nowhere in this text where it says, and the rich man gave him something to eat. Look at it. It says a number of other things about this poor man. It says that he desired food. It says that he was covered in sores, likely because he couldn't walk and he was laying down and he had sores because he was covered in them. He was sick. And it said, who, who came to his attention? Was it the rich man? Who came and paid any attention to him? It said the dogs. Remember, first century, dogs aren't pets. First century, the dogs are savages. It's like the coyote in your neighborhood chasing the deer. That's what's going on here. And licked his sores. They were savage. They were ravenous. The only person that gave this man any attention was the dogs, not the rich man. That's the implication of this text. But look what happens. Both of these guys die. And this gets interesting. We're going to go through the book of Revelation here in 2024 after the fall. But you see a window from this point forward in this parable of what heaven and hell is like. Pay attention, y'all. Death. What happened? What happened to the poor man in death? It says, it's beautiful, it says he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham's side is Old Testament language for the term we get, Sheol. This is the resting place of the dead. This is a place of honor and rest. Turn to Genesis 24 and you see it. These are faithful saints. And so really it's the idea of heaven, paradise something you got to know. There's so much background in this. What would often happen in the first century to poor people who were sick, if they're sick, what are they according to the law? They're unclean. So you know what would happen? We think tradition says they would be carried, they're in Jerusalem, they would be carried to a place. They would be carried to a place. They wouldn't be buried like a normal burial for an Israelite. They would be carried to the valley of Gehenna. Ever heard that term? And they would be thrown out like the trash in Israel. That's where they took the trash and they burned it. And the smoke would go up and it would never end. They would take their bodies, they would carry their bodies 
to the valley of Gehenna to be burned because they were unclean. Notice the contrast. You're meant to catch it. Was he carried to hell, Gehenna? Where was he carried? He was carried by the angels to heaven. This man had faith in God, it appears. Notice that contrast. That's a shocking thing for the first century person reading this, that this poor, sick person wasn't carried to the city dump, even though physically they were. But in the afterlife, they were in heaven, not hell. But notice the contrast with the rich man. It says that he was buried. That means that his five brothers and his family and everybody, all his rich friends, probably came and they celebrated his life and talked about how godly he was and talked about how great he was, but what happened actually to him. It says that what? That he went to Hades. Hades is a Greek New Testament term that is always used for hell. Hell, not heaven. And notice the sobering truth in this, that he was not only in hell, away from the presence of God, but he was in torment. That's what hell is. It's eternal conscious torment. He's not where he thought he would be. Our earthly station, y'all, does not determine our eternal destination. I think what Jesus is doing here is saying, compassionately, even though it doesn't look like it, saying to these Pharisees who are represented in the rich man, saying to them, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by your righteousness. Don't be deceived by your wealth. It will not get you what you think it will get you in the afterlife. Here's what I, we got to be careful in a parable sometimes. Here's what I think this text is not teaching. I don't think it's teaching this. Because he was rich in this life, he's going to hell in the next life. You could get that from reading a couple of things in here. I don't think at all that fits with the gospel message at all. I also don't think just because the guy was poor in this life meant that he would go to heaven. We often do that deal too. I also don't think it means that because the rich man didn't show compassion and do something with a poor person at the gate that automatically meant that he was in hell because he just didn't have compassion on this person. Here's what I do think it's teaching, though, in an ethical way as it relates to our lives. And I think this is where there's a lot of application. Compassion is evidence for conversion. Compassion for those that God puts in our path, maybe even on our doorstep, is evidence and fruit of conversion, right? I mean, that's what God's Word says. Later, Jesus says it in this way. They, I was hungry, and you didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. Depart from me. And then he flips it. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Enter into my rest. It is fruit. 1 John 3, 17 says it this way. If God has given you good in the world, has blessed you in the world, 
and there's a brother or sister in need, and you choose to turn your heart from their need and from them, is God's love abiding in you? The assumption of the question is no. So compassion is certainly, right? It certainly is fruit of conversion. So let me ask you this, though. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your station in life? Maybe it's your pocketbook. Maybe it's your position. What are you trusting in for your eternal life and salvation? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Christ, the finished work of the cross that he offers for us? Are you trusting in something in and of yourself? And maybe more particularly as it relates to living out this. What do you do with the person in need that God puts on your doorstep? That God puts at the driveway of your house? That God puts in your neighborhood? That God puts in your community? Are you willing? Is your heart moved to compassion for people in need as a person who has? Are we moved to that? It's fruit of our faith. And as I look at this text, this guy was hungry. Look at other texts, the call for believers to care for the needs, basic needs of people as believers in Christ. Are we willing to get involved once a month after church and kids' meals and feed those in need, those who are hungry in the name of Jesus? Are we willing to move toward that or we move away from it? There are needs all around us. Is our heart moved toward that? Keep looking at the parable, though. The rich man now is experiencing hell, and he's got some questions. He's got some questions for Father Abraham. Now, listen, parables certainly teach truth. But there's some things in this parable that you go, is that, is that really what the Scripture, is that what the Scripture teaches, or is it just supporting kind of dialogue that helps us understand some truths. I think what you see next in the parable where the rich man is asking uh, Abraham questions and you see in the parable that he sees the other side where he sees heaven and he talks to people in heaven and people in heaven talk to him. I don't think, I don't see anywhere in scripture where that is, okay? But I do think it points, the answers that are given to the question points to the spiritual truths of the text. So walk with me through that. So the rich man has some questions about from hell, basically. What is it like? Is it a big party? What does the rich man say? Look at these questions that he asks. Really, responses. Look at verse 24. He says, Excuse me, verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. Notice what he still thinks about Lazarus. He does it again later. What does he think about Lazarus? He's still a servant. (laughs) See, in hell, nothing changes for you. There's not repentance. He wants mercy, but he's still treating Lazarus like he's a servant. But notice this, notice the torment, notice, man, just give me something to cool it down. Notice the sobering answer that Abraham gives him. But Abraham said, child, remember that you're in a lifetime received 
good, he received bad. He's comforted where you are in anguish. The roles have been reversed. And besides all of this, and here's the central point, I think, and I think this is the timeless point, and, and besides all this, in verse 26, between us, heaven, and the, is a great chasm, a great divide that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I think the second point that Jesus is teaching in this parable is this. The coming judgment is permanent. The coming judgment is permanent for those who reject God. The rich man rejected God. He wasn't repentant like he wanted his brothers to be. It's permanent. It's fixed. You can't go over one way or the other. It's permanent. And I know that is difficult. Many of you have lost people in your lives. Maybe your family that you were close to. But there's a great divide. I think this is an appeal to the living in the parable, right? It's an appeal to the Pharisee that's trusting in all the wrong things. Hell is permanent, he's saying to them. There's no second chance. But yet there's hope. The book of Hebrews, chapter 9, speaks of judgment, but it also speaks of life. I want you to look at this. And the hope that we have, even in the permanence of heaven and hell, look at it with me and get to it. It says this, the author of Hebrews says this, is just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So you die, there's judgment. There's not purgatory, there's not limbo, there's not some intermediate state where you can um, repent and change or people can give enough money so you can get out of. No, there is death and there is judgment. But, look at this, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He's coming back, not to deal with sin, he did that first time on the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, that there is hope beyond the grave, there is a place, there is heaven awaits because Christ died and took our sins upon himself that we might believe in him and have forgiveness and have eternal life. That's the hope that we have in the midst of a sobering, sobering truth. The prophet Ezekiel, the Old Testament saints in Israel, said it this way as a prophet looking at his people, the house of Israel, and noticing how they had turned away from God, turned their eyes the other way to evil. What did he say? He said, turn back Turn back, away from evil. Turn to God so that you may live. So yes, it's permanent. You know, we talked about our willingness to show compassion to people who are in need. And those needs are often clear. They're physical needs. And oftentimes people in that kind of need, like the poor man, Lazarus, they know their need. But what about the rich man? Because Jesus is actually talking about his need in this parable, not the poor man. You catch that? What do we do with the rich man? Are we as compassionate to the rich man's need as we are to the poor man? First church I served in, 
Memorial area of Houston. I was a youth pastor there for almost 10 years. And y'all, I I grew up at the country club. I mean, I wasn't raised in that zip code, but I hung out there because I played golf. But that was a different world for me. But being there 10 years, one of the questions that we asked constantly as a staff, like, how are we going to minister to the spiritual needs of these people? I mean, in in the zip code, in the neighborhood around the church I was in, when I moved there in 2002, there was no home under 500 grand. Now there's probably no home under a million. So how do we minister to the rich man who does have spiritual need? who Jesus does show, want to show compassion and care for. And what we found by talking to our members and our people, man, there, there is great need there, spiritual need for things like counseling, for marriages that are broken, for recovery because of alcohol use from the weight of all the burden of wealth. That there was need and we began really the difficult road because it was, there was a lot more barrier. There was a lot more barrier to the rich man in many ways than the poor man because the poor man knew his need. But man, God used that to minister to people. So my question for you is, do you have a heart of compassion, not only for the least of these, but what if God puts people in your life, maybe your neighbor, because functionally speaking, we are the rich man. I mean, in the sense of status and wealth, What about your neighbor? What about the person that you work with? Maybe your boss. And maybe your attitude is, I got no problem with the person uh, under my station who I know has a need and they know they have a need. I got no problem serving them. But man, those Woodlands people, man. I mean, they wear, you know, golf shirts and khakis and they're just kind of snooty. Sorry to pick on Woodlands. We We can go Magnolia. We can go Montgomery. We, we can go wherever. I don't want to meet their needs. This is what Jesus is saying, though. He's reaching to the Pharisee, the rich man, and saying, wake up. Are we willing to minister to those people as well? That's a little tougher, is it not? Are we willing to minister to our neighbor who needs Jesus but don't think they do? Willing to minister to people in great need all around us. In many ways, it's a tougher mission field, but God calls us to it, just like the person who's hungry and in need. But here's the thing. What's the root issue for the rich man? What's the root issue for people like the rich man? Is it a lack of knowledge? Is it just an intellectual problem? Is it, I need more signs and miracles? What is it? The last part of this passage tells us what it is. The third thought you have today is this. See, a hardened heart toward God, the root issue is not the things I just said. The hardened heart toward God rejects his revelation and resurrection. Rejects it. That's what a person with a hardened heart does. Look at the second question in verse 27. Of the rich man in hell, if he can't get out... He turns to his family and he says, I want them out. His family who are living, he says, look, look at it, verse 27. I beg you, Abraham, send Lazarus, he's sending him off on Aaron again, to my father's house amongst the living, for I have five brothers and they must be like him. 
so that they may, you may warn them. Warn them of what? Of hell and the realities of hell and torment. Warn them of that. Lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said, this is again sobering. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What he's saying is, trust the word of God that's been revealed through Moses and the prophets. And guess what? These people have more. They have Jesus. They have the word made flesh. And look at, think about this. Rich man in hell, in torment. What is he doing next? He says no to Abraham, the father of the faith. He's arguing with Abraham about how their family who are living could come to faith in Jesus and not be tormented. And he says, no. No, Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, meaning Lazarus, they will what? They will repent. If you show them something miraculous and a sign of a dead person coming, then they will turn and they will repent. I don't know about you, but before I came to faith in Jesus, man, I, I was in the church so I could give all the answers. I knew all the answers. But that sounds similar to what I thought. I rejected God's word until I was about 20 because I wanted my own way. And I also said, well, when people would ask, like my mom or my dad or people in my family or people that knew me, and they were trying to witness to me, I would say things like, I need a sign. You got to give me more than that. You got to show me more. But I always had a natural explanation to anything miraculous, even though that's what I said I wanted. Notice Abraham's response. And I think this is important as it relates to how we share. And maybe our, even our own hearts, look at this. <clears throat> he says, no, even if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, meaning revelation, God's revelation, the word of God, if they don't listen to the word of God, neither will they be convinced, even if somebody rises from the dead. This is Jesus saying this, and so this is foreshadowing, isn't it? They're not going to believe, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe in a resurrection. They're not going to believe in my resurrection. He's saying again to these Pharisees, you're deceived, you have a hardened heart. And hardened heart rejects both revelation and revelation and resurrection. I want to show you something with the, just briefly with the Pharisees. I want to show you a timeline. Go with me for a minute. A timeline of what they want from Jesus when they interact with Jesus. First, in Matthew chapter 12, they come to Jesus after he's been ministering for a little while. And they say to him, Give us a sign and we'll believe. And Jesus responds and says, nope, not giving you a sign. The only sign that you're going to get is that of Jonah. And what he meant by that, in the, in the text it says that he was in the belly of a fish for three days. And what happened after that? He rose. So he says, no, I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you one sign, actually. I'm going to give you a sign of resurrection. Death and resurrection. Went way over their head, I think. That's the sign I'm going to give you. Then the next thing that happens in progression, this parable, where he gives the parable to this rich man, and he says, hey, if, if, 
if, if there's resurrection, we'll believe. One month later, you know what happens in the life of Jesus? Jesus goes to Bethany. And who does he raise from the dead? Lazarus. They just heard this allegorical story, this parable about a guy named Lazarus. And a month later, Jesus raises a man named Lazarus. And you know what they do after that? Lazarus leaves. Everybody's a witness. Everybody hears about it. The Pharisees hear about it. And you know what the Pharisees do? Do they believe? Oh, yeah, he's the Messiah. He's been telling us all along about revelation and resurrection. Here it is. He's proven himself to us. No. They go to Caiaphas, the high priest, and what do they say? Everybody's going to believe in this guy unless we do something. And Caiaphas prophesies and says, no, there's a man that's going to come, and he's going to die and be raised. And you know what they said in response? They didn't say we'd believe. Even one of the high priests said it was coming. Did they believe then? They didn't believe then. You know what they did? They said, now we're going to kill him. And we want to go kill Lazarus. Hard and hard. Guess what? They got their wish. Not long later, what happens? They crucify Jesus. Put him on a cross. He dies. Three days later, there's reports. Soldiers come back. He's risen. Reports all over the city. He's risen from the dead. And guess who they come back to? They come back to these Pharisees. And what do the Pharisees do? Do they stop there and they repent and believe in Jesus and turn from their ways? Yes or no? You know what they do? They give the soldiers money and they say to them, take this money and say to everybody, the disciples came in the night and took his body. A hardened heart toward God rejects revelation and resurrection demonstrated by the Pharisees clearly. Can I get real honest with you this morning? Is that you? Is that you? You see, the evidence is all over. Revelation of God. Resurrection. You still have a hardened heart. Lord Christ, who's died for your sins and raised anew. And also I'd say this. This tells us also in the way that we bear witness as believers to Christ that the word of God is central that the power of God to salvation is in the gospel and the truth of God's word. And it also is like, well, how do people who have a hardened heart believe? That is a God-enabled repentance. And God certainly wants to use us as instruments in people's lives to show them the word of God, to show them the Son of God, to preach and teach the gospel to them. And God does that work. And you go, well, what about evangelism? What about apologetics? I think there's a great place for you in kind of pre-evangelism to share all kinds of truths, all kinds of logical things, but the Word of God is central here. The Word of God will reveal truth to people by the Spirit and change their hearts. So I would encourage you to keep the Word of God central as you share your faith. It's what changes people's hearts, and God certainly wants to use you as that instrument how will they believe without a preacher? How will they believe without somebody to tell them 
But don't spend all your time on secondary and tertiary things with people. Spend your time in gospel truth. Convincing your friends about your political views will not lead them to Jesus. You might even convince them that God exists. Those are all good things. But centralize all your thoughts. Your thoughts with people that don't know Jesus around the truth of the gospel and his word. And watch God change their hearts. And it's also freeing for us as believers in Christ to rest in what God's going to do. And so it ought to make us people of prayer as we bear witness more than anything. That we know that it's ultimately not up to us, but God working in people's hearts. What a great time it is with being back to school, kids. Being back to school, moms and dads, as you're interacting with more people. Perhaps more like the rich man than the poor man even. For the sake of the gospel, to be a light to people around him. So the root of unbelief is our hardened hearts. If you've ever been, we'll close with this, if you've ever been at a memorial service or a graveside service, a loved one or a friend, perhaps you've heard the preacher, this is given the doing the preaching of the word there. Perhaps you've heard them say, I've done this. Perhaps you've heard them say something like this. If so-and-so, whoever it is that just died, if so-and-so could speak from the grave, could I tell you what they would want you to know most? They would want you to know Christ and Christ crucified and raised, that Christ alone can change your Eternal destiny. They'd want you to know, like this passage, they'd want you to know that your station in life means nothing toward your eternal destiny, but what you do with Christ does. They'd want you to know the permanence of the place that they're in, one way or another, whether it's punishment or whether it's glory. And they'd want you to know that amongst the living, that it's the hardness of heart that is the root problem of those amongst the living, maybe even you, that they might turn and trust in Christ. That is what this text teaches us. Your important takeaway this morning, and it's a sobering one, is this. The grave speaks so that we might hear. The grave speaks so that we might hear. The question for us is, are we listening? Let me pray.